great way to begin a Sunday, isn't it? To be reminded of the goodness of God. Well, look what the wind blew in today. <laughs> I had someone say that to me on the way, uh, on the way in the auditorium. That's true, it's a windy day, isn't it? But it's a good day to be here together in, in the house of the Lord. Um, as you're turning to Revelation 18, I want to thank you for just such a, a warm welcome that you gave to my friend Leo from Costa Rica last week, and it was a privilege for him to get, to get a chance to speak here with, uh, with us, and, and, uh, and I, I do want to share a prayer request too. You might remember he asked for prayer for the one man he showed in a picture at the church that, uh, that was struggling with cancer, and uh, the good news is that that struggle has ended, and he went to be with the Lord on Friday night, but... I'd ask that you be in prayer for his, his family, his wife, Saidi, and his two children, little children, uh, Matias and Abigail. And I'd be praying for them. That'll be a, a difficult trans, transition for them. But you know what? Uh, even in, in difficult times, God is good, like we just sang. Amen? And I'm so thankful for him. I'm, I was thankful that I had the chance to talk with him just a few moments before he passed away they, through, through uh, Skype and and we were able to talk with the family and to share stories of when he accepted Christ and share verses from Scripture. And, and it's so different when a person who knows where they're going passes away. And in fact, the, the Bible says that it's, it's a blessed thing to the Lord. And so, uh, so I'm thankful for where he's at. But be, be in prayer for the family through this, this transition as well. Um, now let's get, let's get back into Revelation. Are you ready for that? Ready to get back in after a little week off? Uh, as we uh, head back into, um, into the, the book of Revelation. And, uh, make, go to slide one. I think something's... Yeah, that's not quite on the, on the, on the first slide. Or slide two. There we go. The 11th hour uh, is where, where we'll go. I want to kind of give a recap um, and, and, uh, of, uh, and really simplify what we talked about two weeks ago. Because that we got into some pretty deep stuff with the timing of the tribulation. Anyone agree with me on that? All right, anyone's head still spinning a little bit, even two weeks later? All right, so um, I just want to kind of simplify that, and then we'll move on from there um, as, we, as we go forward. And re- back in Revelation t- chapter 3, uh, you can stay in, in chapter 8, uh, which is where we'll spend the time today. But in, back in chapter 3, you might remember in the letters to the churches that Jesus said, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. The hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus was warning of this time of tribulation, this time of trial, and he was saying, I'm going to pull you out of that period of time. And there are a couple of different views, and I'm going to fly through them quickly. And you look at the, at the tribulation, there are those who would say, well, if the hour of trial refers to the entire tribulation period, then we can expect that rapture, we call it, the, to take place before the tribulation. So we call that a pre-tribulational rapture. For those who say, well, no, we believe that the hour of trial is referring to the seventh seal because that is the worst part of it. Then, then we would call that a mid-tribulational rapture. And uh, for those who would say, I, we also believe it's the seventh seal, but we think that the seventh seal isn't in the middle of the tribulation, they would call that a pre-wrath rapture. And so with all of those, that's, the, the, that's in a nutshell the three different views, all of which would agree that before the, the worst of the worst happens, God is going to come and rapture us. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. Amen? Amen. And so that's where we're, at, where, where we're at there. Now I want to come back to our context um, in, chapter, in chapter 8. So remember, at this point so far, we've gone through six of the seals. 
right? We've gone through, we've opened up six of the seals, and so we're, we're about ready to open the seventh. And, and if you can put yourself back into the mindset of those who were there, and at the opening of these seals, there were seven seals of God's wrath, and, and six of them are open, and they get to the seventh one, and I'm sure there's some excitement, there's some anticipation, um, because they're thinking, this is it, this is the last one, right? We'll be done. We're, we're six-sevenths of the way done. And then we come to Revelation chapter 8. Let's start in verse 1. This is what we read. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Let's stop there for a moment. This is a dramatic event. I mean, this is a dramatic event that's taking place in heaven. I mean, I can imagine it at the moment. You can hear the drum rolls as they're announcing, hey, everyone get around. This is the last seal. This is the, uh, you know, announcing the, the seventh seal, uh, the last of God's wrath upon the earth for all of the violence and, and evil and wickedness of the people on the earth. And, and then just as it opens, no one can speak. Is that a little awkward? Right? That's a little awkward. I just waited 15 seconds. Right? 15 seconds, and yeah, that seemed a little, little bit awkward. Multiply that by 120. And that's the response of people in heaven when they saw whatever it is that we're about to see. They, they open up the seventh seal, eyes are wide open, jaws are dropped, and they can't speak. For half an hour. Right? Imagine that. Which proves, by the way, that Alan Troop was not there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> wherever Alan is, I have to tell him I said that. Yeah, oh, he's, oh, okay, so I'll, I'll have to tell him I said that. Um, but, uh, no, but you know, it's, it's a dramatic moment. Right? It's, a, it's a very dramatic moment. And, and, and what's going on? So why? What is it? What is it that they saw, or what is it that they read? What is it that that, that was in this seventh seal? Anyone interested? All right, let's read about it. Let's let's continue on in verse two. Verse two is what we read. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Remember the seven archangels that that stand in the presence of God. They're always there, and we read about that back in. In uh, chapters 2 and 3, where each of the, each of the angels were, were given a letter to take to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And, and so these are, are these seven incredible angels, and at the highest of, the, of their order. And now each of them, are, they're given seven trumpets. And so when you think about that, you might remember we've gone through six of the seven seals, and we know that the seventh seal, the seventh seal is the big one. But here, all of a sudden, they open up the seventh seal and find... That, that seventh seal actually is seven trumpets. In other words, just in the moment when you think, oh, we're almost done, God says, nope, it's starting over again. Right? Seven seals, now the seventh seal becomes seven trumpets. God's wrath is not done. In fact, it's really just getting started. It's, it's, it's about to get worse. Now remember, at this point, we're either at the, the middle point of the tribulation or p- potentially a, a little bit further on, but there's plenty of time left 
in this seven period of time. It's also important to note here that remember what the sixth seal was? The one that we had just read was the cosmic disturbances. The sun would be turned dark and the, the moon would be turned to the color of blood. And, and, and you've got these cosmic disturbances going on. And Jesus said in what I call the head for the hill speech of, of Mark 13, he said, at that point, things get so bad, you should just head for the hills and don't look back. Don't run, in, don't run and grab your clothes. Just head for the hills. Because he's saying, this is when it's going to get really bad. And, uh, and this is that moment that Jesus was talking about. And, and John gets a glimpse of that. And, and, uh, and so there's a, this is a very dramatic moment. And, and I, w- I would say in all of human history, but it hasn't happened yet. This is going to be the, one of the most dramatic moments of the future for us that we know of. Does that make sense? And, and so... In fact, there's added drama in heaven in just in the announcement, in the introduction to these seven trumpets. I'd like to read verses 3 through 6, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll walk through those, those, uh, those verses as well. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. We read this. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Isn't that a dramatic moment as you see the, uh, the seventh seal, the seal being opened and the seven trumpets are being, uh, being ready to be played? And as you see what's going on there, I think it's important um, to, to note some of the things that's going on. Because this is a clear reference to what we learned back in chapter 6. You might remember back in chapter 6, uh, in fact it was considered the fifth seal. Uh, if you want to turn there for a moment, you can keep a finger in chapter 8. But in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we read this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held. So we're talking about martyrs, people who were martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 10. And, when, or, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So they're crying out for vengeance. And the answer comes in verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who would be killed as they were was completed. And so you see, at the time that these people are praying, and these are the, the prayers of the martyrs, and at the times that, that these martyrs are praying, uh, they weren't receiving any answers. And their prayer became, how long? How long are these are the persecuted Christians and they're saying, Lord, how long until you come and take care of business? How long until you bring justice back to the, to the earth? How long? And we see that question repeated and then the answer of, of God is not yet. How many of you like that answer? I mean, I would like to at least if I hear not yet say, not yet, but I will on such and such a date and time. That would, okay, at least appease me a little. God just says, not yet. There are still more of your brothers that are going to die before, before this whole thing is over. Not yet. 
And uh, so then that's chapter 6. Fast forward to chapter 8. And now it's time. Now it's time. All of that ends. All, everything from Revelation 6. All of that ends. Look at what it said in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. God at, at last acts on all of those prayers. And he's acting on all of those, all of those prayers. What, and it teaches us that God was listening all along. Right? God was listening all along. He was storing up his wrath against the earth dwellers who constantly persecuted his people. And, and everything from, from Revelation 6 and before, all of those prayers are being stored up for that moment. But in chapter 8, all of a sudden, it's, it's the day. And the prayers of the saints, which are represented in Scripture by the incense, and, and the censer of the incense uh, would, be, would, would hold the incense, and, and, and the, the smoke of that would go up, and, and just as you could smell the incense of, of that, that was a representation of how God is aware of the prayers of the persecuted, the prayers of the people to God. And he's saying he takes this censer, he winds it up, and he flings it to earth. And when it lands, it lands with thunder lightning, earthquakes. Is this serious business or what? This is very serious business. In this, though, there are three concepts that I find that we learn about God, and I think it's very important for us to understand these, and, it's, and I think it's worth marveling and investigating and chewing on some of this theological truth because I think there's a lot of applications for us today. The first concept that we hear that we that we learn about God so far, just even in this in this introduction to the seven trumpets, uh, there are three concepts that we learn. The first one is kind of a reminder because we've already studied this, we've heard about it a couple of times in the Book of Revelation, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I do want you to see how this same concept keeps getting woven into the tapestry of the Book of Revelation, and you can't you can't separate the Book of Revelation from this concept. The first concept is this, that God stores up his wrath. God stores up his wrath. You know, sometimes people do bad things, right? Horrific things even. And they don't get caught. And it can become very easy for us to think, you know, hey, I'm getting away with this. Anyone ever felt that before? You do something wrong and you don't get caught. So you think, hey, I'm getting away with this. Encourages you to do, continue to do more. Know this. No one gets away with anything. Period. No one gets away with anything. We might think it. We might get away with something for a while. But in the end, nobody gets away with anything. A price has to be paid. Now, is it possible for us to not pay that price? There is something called substitutionary atonement. The idea behind that is that Jesus paid the price for us. But I'll tell you what, he paid the price. We didn't get away, we didn't get away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. This has been true all through Scripture. In fact, uh, if, if, I'll just throw a couple of verses on the, on the screen. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, we read, Every proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though they join forces, what? 
None will go, what? Unpunished. Let's skip forward a chapter. He who mocks the poor, reproaches his makers, he who is glad at calamity will, what? Not go unpunished. Skip ahead two chapters. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who speaks lies will not escape. It, it, we read this time and time again in, in the book of Numbers. Uh, in, in chapter 32, verse 23, we read, But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure, your sin will find you out. There, no one gets away with anything. And so whether you're, whether you're the villain or the victor, this is an important truth to understand. Right? When you're the one that's doing something wrong and you're the one that's, that, that's, that's doing something that is against God's commands, you think you're getting away with it. You need to know you are not getting away with anything. And you need to know that. It's also for the, for the victim. Those who are, who are receiving the persecution, those who are being persecuted, those who are, who are on, the, on the, the, the receiving end of a, of a bad transaction, those who are being cheated, those who are being made fun of, those who are who are persecuted by, for their faith, in this case, the, the martyrs, it's a, it's a consolation to know. None of my persecutors are getting away with anything. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you were completely innocent and because of other people doing wrong things, you had to suffer? I know of people going through some of that. I, I've talked to people. I know some of your stories and because of, of guilty people doing bad things to you and, and you're the one in trouble for it. You, you know what? I have a little bit of consolation for you that nobody is getting away with anything. Oh, but the courts, the, there's not enough information for the courts. Oh, I know an eyewitness who's also the judge. Right? No one gets away with anything. And so it's important to understand. It's kind of like uh, someone who, who cheats on their taxes and they get away with it. So they cheat a little more the next year, add a few little things to it, they get away with it. And then they cheat on their taxes a little bit more, get away with it, and then one, and then one day they get an audit. And then what do they do? They go back for the last seven years, I think it is, if I, if I remember correctly. And uh, they go back for seven years, and they go through all of it, and uh, all of a sudden, you realize you didn't get away with anything because now you owe for all of those times you cheated with interest. That's the situation that's going on. And, and we see that God is storing up his wrath against the wicked. He's, he's not letting them get away with anything. He's just letting it store up. And, um, and that's the same thing that we see here with God. Second thing we learn about God and the way he responded these prayers. This God always listens to the prayers of His people. Uh, there may be times that you are suffering, or you're being persecuted undeservingly, and you cry out to God, and it might seem like He's not listening. If you've been if you've been in the faith for a long period of time, you've probably been at that point. Is there anyone who said I've been at that point in my life where I felt like God was not listening to me? You've been there, but you know what? He is. He's listening to you. God always listens to the prayers of his people. In chapter 6, we saw the prayers of the saints. And they're praying, "How long, Lord, please avenge us. That was chapter 6, right? And we see that in the symbol of the altar of incense. And, 
and they're crying out, how long till you avenge us? To them, it could seem like God wasn't listening. But he was. Take it a step further. Who wrote this book? John. Where's John when he wrote this book? On Patmos, exiled in a prison on Patmos. And he's praying, but he doesn't even get to interact with people. It could, could it seem in that moment like maybe God wasn't listening? And all of a sudden, God takes him up to heaven and says, John, I want you to see I'm listening to the prayers of the persecuted. I hear them. And even though I haven't acted right away, I hear them. I'm listening to those prayers. And your persecutors are storing up their wrath, storing up my wrath. And God reminds John of this. A beautiful thing, isn't it? What a beautiful thing. In, God, in chapter 8, God undoubtedly listens to the prayers of all the persecuted saints. Let's look back at verse 3 and 4 again. Then another angel having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense. What's he talking about there? The incense represents prayer in the context. He was given much incense that, it, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Okay? All of those prayers came into the presence of God. He could smell those prayers. And there he was. By the way, I think it's important to note here when it talks about the prayers of the saints there, there are a lot of uh, uh, ideas out there that sainthood is something that, that men through some type of work can attain that, you know, some level of sainthood. That's not what you find in the Bible. The word saints means people who are, who are set apart. Right? So it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what God has done for you. So what's he talking about? He's not talking about perfect people. He's talking about believers. The saints. So the idea of sainthood being some higher level of spirituality, that's a very Catholic idea, but it is not a biblical one. And so what we find in, 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 this, in this verse is he's talking about the, the prayers of all of the saints. And what we see is that God is always listening, even when it seems like he's not answering right away. And that's a comfort for us to know because sometimes we're praying and we don't get answers right away. I mean, if there's anyone in here who has never felt that, you're either not praying, right? Or God is answering you right away every time and I have some requests for you, right? <laughs> One of those two things has to be happening. If you're a praying person, then you know that there are going to be times where you pray and you just feel like, I don't, I don't feel like God is listening to me, but he is. And it's comforting for us to know that God is always listening to our prayers, even when it seems like he's not answering right away. And God is always listening. Which brings us to the third truth about God that I think is crucial to really understanding even the first two. And it's this. Number three, God always answers our prayers. Now before, the second one is talking about God listening to our prayers. The second one, God always answers our prayers in his timing. This is the key. This is the part that, that helps us understand this. I believe we, we have to understand. God always answers his prayers 
in, or answers our prayers in His timing. So when we pray, and God doesn't seem to answer, we're tempted to think that He's not listening, or worse yet, maybe He's listening and He's just not, not going to respond. He's ignoring us. It's not true. It's not true at all. He always answers, but He always answers in the perfect timing, in His timing, not in ours. Does that make sense? You see, what happens is there's, there's this tension between our timing and God's timing. Have you ever felt that in prayer? There's this, there's this, there's this tension between the way, the way I like things to be done in a certain way and in a certain time. I like things to be done on time, and, uh, uh, and which, is, which is why I try to plan for ministry things. I, plan, I try to plan months in, a, uh, in advance. When we get the pastors together, we have our calendar meeting, and we plan for months in advance, usually about nine months in advance. We want to make sure we have our, our calendars in place why? Because we've got this sense of timing and we want to make sure things are done on time. We, and God's timing is sometimes very different from our own. And there's this tension. Why is that? I think the answer begins with us. When we think of our time, we are finite. We are finite. What does that mean? The, the root word is, is fin, and it has nothing to do with fish in this context. It just means the end, right? Like, we, like the word finish. And, and so we have, um, in both, both directions, going forward, in time or going backwards in time, we have ends. We have, there's an end where there's a point where we begin and there's a point where we die. That is how we, we are by nature, right? We have this very limited amount of experience when it comes to time and a limited amount of past. We have a limited amount of future and, and we don't always know how much future we have left. And that's the nature of man. God, however, is infinite. He's the opposite. God is infinite. He had no beginning. You could go back a million years and God, God would have been around for just as long as he's been around today. That's a, that's, a, that's a hard concept to wrap our minds around, isn't it? You could go back a billion years. There he was. Right? God is infinite. He had no beginning. He has no end. He has absolutely no end whatsoever. He will go on forever. And so when you, when you put that together and you realize, wow, God's experience of time is very different than ours. Is that safe to say? His experience of time is very different from ours, which is why, if you remember when we studied the book of 2 Peter, we read this. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now think about that for a moment. God and his patience, God and his, his perspective of time, waiting a day, waiting a thousand years, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Right? Is that your timing? I mean, it's not, definitely not my timing. Right? I remember when I was a kid, and, I, and back then, they, when the, the really cool things that you'd get in a cereal box, we'd have, you'd have to send in for them. And then they'd say, allow four to six weeks which to a kid is like an eternity. Four to six weeks, are you crazy? And, uh, and I remember waiting four or five years for one, just like checking the, checking the mail. And then to this day, I think maybe my parents just, uh, just hit it so that I would go get the mail every morning. I don't know. But why? Because our sense of time is very, it's very different. You know, and when you're four years old, a minute is a long time. A minute is a long time for a four-year-old. Just, in fact, uh, this past um, this past week, uh, we had some some teachers who canceled or couldn't make it in because of either sickness or uh, uh, because of weather, and and so I, so Monica and I taught the fours and fives 
their sense of time is very different than mine. <laughs> right? And so I ask them to, be, to, to do this for a couple seconds, and then I'll turn around, and they're gone. Right? They're, they're cute, by the way. You guys have the cutest four- and five-year-olds. But, uh, but my sense of uh, time is very different. In fact, for me, though, my sense of time changed because I remember thinking, all right, it's only an hour and a half. It's an hour and a half has to have passed. And I look up at the clock, and it says 6.20. Oh, man, I'm just getting started. You know, our, but our view of time changes over time. And so, so as you can imagine, what happens is, is for a four-year-old, I mean, a, a minute is, is a large enough percentage of their life that it seems like a long time, right? It, it can seem like a long time. But then when you've lived to be 40, say, well, then all of a sudden, a minute is nothing. Why? Because what happens is when we've experienced more time, we become a little bit more like God in the sense of our perspective. We zoom out a little bit more. And we, we, can, we understand a little bit more of what's going on. And so for us, a minute is not a long period of time. For a four-year-old, it is a long period of time. And so what happens is as we grow in our understanding of time and our experience of time, we'll begin to grasp a little bit better and better. We'll never completely get there. Because even though we live for eternity, we don't have an eternity in the past. But, we, but as we begin to understand more and more time, all of a sudden, we begin to understand things a little bit more from the perspective of God. Does that make sense? And, and we can see things from his perspective. And, and so when you, when you look at this and you say, well, because we are finite and God is infinite, and I think this is what's causing the tension between the way we view time. So for... Those who are finite, uh, we, and we tend to ask questions like, how long? Right? So for us to take a five-hour drive, as adults, to take a five-hour drive to go visit some relatives, it, it's not that long. But if you bring young kids in the car, what are they going to ask? Are we there yet? Like, no, this is still our driveway. <laughs> <laughs> Different perspectives of time. And so the longer you live. And so we tend to ask God, and when we're thinking about when he should act, and we want him to do things, and we want him to, to avenge our enemies, and we, want, we say, how long? Right? And then God's answer is always something along the lines of, not yet. Not yet. In fact, I, we used to have a thing where my youth pastor started this at our church, where whenever people, whenever the youth would say, how, long, how much longer until we get there? He would just say, oh, about an hour. We could be eight hours away. We could be two minutes away. Oh, about an hour. And so people would just quit asking, right? Um, but not yet. That's God's answer. He, he's, his, in his timing, uh, many times in Scripture we find that, that it's just not yet. So there's this tension between our timing and God's timing. And by the way, this is not new to us. This is not new. In fact, you can go back to the oldest book, the first book of the Bible written. And you have Job, and, and Job's going through his own personal holocaust, and what does he say? He says, how long will you torment my soul and break me, break me into pieces with words, right? Or take David in Psalm 13, when he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long uh, shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? From David's perspective, his enemies are chasing him. He's been praying for God to, to, to vindicate him and to release him. And it's not happening in his timing, so what does he ask? How long? Asaph, 
In Psalm 74, same thing. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy me. What's he saying? God, it's time to act. Get your hands out of your pockets and do it. You sense the frustration that, 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 that Asaph has? Or Ethan, who wrote, who wrote Psalm 89. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? And we can go on and on and on. Moses asked how long in Psalm 90.13. Isaiah asked how long in Isaiah 6.11. Jeremiah asked how long in Jeremiah 4.14. Habakkuk asked how long in Habakkuk 1.2. Zechariah asked how long in Zechariah 1.12. Even John, the one who wrote this book when he was sitting with Jesus, we read in John 10.24, he says, how long will you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. Why? Because we're impatient. Because we're on our timing. In time, we have a different perspective of time. And he's saying, Jesus, if, if, there's a lot of evidence you're given that you are the Messiah. If you're, just tell us. Don't put us through all of this stuff. Right? So it should come to no surprise that when we come to Revelation chapter 6, when we read about the prayers of the saints, what, what, are, they, what are they crying out? How long? O Lord, holy and true, until you judge the, and avenge the, the blood of those who dwell on the earth. And the answer was, not yet. Not yet. But, that's Revelation 6. Now we're in Revelation 8. Very different story. Revelation 8, God says, now it's time. Now it's time. And that's what we read in verse 6. So the seven angels who are the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, saying, this, the seventh seal, this is for all of those prayers of all of those saints. I have stored up, just as I stored up my wrath against the, the wicked, I have stored up the prayers of those saints. And now I'm going to re release the wrath on the evildoers. Because of your prayers. God will always answer our prayers in his timing. Well, there are three applications for us here, and I think it's important for us to understand each of these and really how they relate to each other. And, and really, in a, in a nutshell, I, I would just say, I would put it this way. There's, there's prayer, patience, and perspective. If you can just remember those three things, uh, I think it would help you, and I think it could help you in your prayer life as well. What I mean by prayer, pray even when it seems like God isn't answering. Pray even when it seems like God isn't answering. Know that he is answering. He is listening and he will answer at the right time. And he is just waiting for that perfect moment to unleash all the power of those prayers. He's going to unleash them all at once. It reminds me when I was a kid, I used to have a BB gun. So this, this might date me, but you had to pump it like this. Anyone remember that? And so we would always, when we were shooting each other, we'd say, you can't pump it more than twice. So kids, don't, don't do that. But that when you pump it five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, all of a sudden it's pretty powerful. In a sense, that's what we're seeing here. God's saying, I am storing up all those, those prayers. And the, the power is not being lost on those prayers. And in one moment, he just unleashes all the power of those prayers. Pray 
even when it seems like God isn't listening. When you think of, of missionaries who had huge impact on the world, probably two of the top three or four names that would come to your, to, to your mind would be William Carey and Adoniram Judson, right? I mean, how many of you have heard of them, at least? Right, so most of you have heard of them. Major, major missionaries. Um, did you know that, um, that William Carey labored working with the Hindus for seven years before a single convert came, before a single person came to know Jesus Christ? Seven years. Imagine how he must have felt six years and nine months into that time period. He's been praying for these people. He's dedicated his life to ministering to these people. He wants to see great things happen among these people. Six years, nine months, nothing. Did you feel discouraged? I, I, I find, too, that uh, Adoniram Judson toiled seven years before he had won. Some of the churches that were supporting him were a little concerned. They say, what's going on over there? Is it, is it worth all the time and energy to, to send you over there? And so this is what he wrote back to them. He said, I beg the churches to have patience. If a ship were here to carry me to any part of the world, I would not leave my field. Tell the brethren, success is as certain as the promise of a faithful God can make it. Beautiful words, isn't it? And I Judson understood those prayers are not being wasted just because it seemed like they weren't getting answered. He was praying, and he was praying, and he was praying. And eventually one did come to Christ, and then another one came to Christ, and then another one came to Christ, and another one came to Christ, and many of them have come to, many have come to Christ. In fact, in language school, in, uh, uh, when I was in, in Costa Rica, and I was in language school, we had a chapel service, and there was one lady who came in, and she was, she was Asian, and she came in and she said, I was, I'm so thankful for my salvation that I had to go back and check who led the person that led me to the Lord, who led them to the Lord, and, and try and go back and find out who, who did it. And she said, and I can trace my spiritual lineage all the way back to, uh, to Adoniram Judson. And her salvation today is because there was a man who was willing to pray for seven years with no answers. But he prayed. And pray even when it seems like God isn't answering. Secondly, patience. Be patient while waiting for an answer. Be patient while waiting for an answer. My mom, my mom's dad, we call him Papa. I mean, he, if, he's, he was quite a character. In fact, if anyone wonders why I have a little bit of an addiction to adrenaline, it's because of him. Right? He, was, he was the wild and crazy guy. And, uh, um, World War II hero, and, and, um, and, and yet he did not accept Christ during all of that time. And, and, um, and so my mom, when she accepted Christ, started praying for him. And I don't think, I think you could list the number of days, you could count the days that she, she did not pray for him from that day on all the way to the day that he died. I, don't, I think that you could count them on, on two hands easily. She prayed almost every day. And as a kid, I would even hear her pray sometimes. And she would pray for the salvation of her dad. And it seemed like he would not budge, ever. Have you ever met someone like that? Someone who just said, oh, this person will never get saved. And he was just that kind of a person. 
fun guy, but no interest in spiritual things. Two weeks before he passed away, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It's like God just unleashed years of prayer and broke this man's heart. He accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, I'll tell you what, it may seem like a lot of time, and it required a lot of patience for my mom to pray every day for years for his salvation. But I'll tell you what, his eternal destiny has changed. A million years from now, it's going to seem like that was a small sacrifice because he will have spent a million years in heaven instead of a million years in hell. What's 40 years of prayer? Right? What's 40 years? It's, it's really not that much when you think about it. The last thing, I think if you're struggling with, with prayer, and you're struggling with patience in your prayer life, the third one I think kind of finishes off the cycle here so we can kind of see how it all works together and that's perspective, and that is to think from an eternal perspective. See, as we live on our lives, we, we are given eternal life, and as we live on our experience of time, is going to become larger and larger and larger, and we're going we're gonna to be able to zoom out in a sense and, and see more of history, and all of a sudden, what used to seem like a lot is going to one day seem like a small amount, right? Just like that for those children who, who a minute is a forever, and, and yet for us now, as we get older, a minute is nothing. We, we're one day going to be able to look at, at, at the past and we'll say, a, a year was not a long time to wait. Two years? A decade only? Two decades? In my mom's case, four decades of prayer? It's going to seem like nothing when we look at what God has done with the power of those prayers. Does that make sense? And, and so I would say we have to begin to start thinking. Someday we're going to look back and we'll say, why were we so impatient? Why were we always crying how long? Why couldn't we have been satisfied with not yet? And it's because it's a part of our growth. As we move from being finite to beginning to experience a little bit of, of infinity as we move into the future. It's, we're finite right now. Waiting a year or two or a decade or two might seem like a long time, but a thousand years from now, it's nothing. A million years from now, less. And I think maybe... Maybe some of us don't pray like we should because we don't have the heart for it. Because we've prayed for things and we haven't seen God answer in the moment. We've been praying for things. Maybe we, we tried it for a while. Maybe we've gone a whole month praying for something and then nothing happens. And Well, we don't have a heart for that. I'm hoping and praying that this passage would impact you like it's impacting me. Say, you know what, I'm going to pray even when it seems like God isn't answering. Because I know, I know up here, and I know in here, he's still listening, and he's going to answer in his timing. And when he does, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. And that can motivate us to continue praying. You know, and I've heard people say, there's no, well, there's no motivation that gets me, gets me going and, and I, I can't keep doing this over and over again. And, and, and I would say, don't, don't let any of those motivations bother you. Don't, don't let them, in fact, it's kind of like taking a shower. I, 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 my suggestion is that you do it frequently and thoroughly, right? 
Come back to the motivation and say, all right, Lord, I need it again today. But don't, get all, don't beat yourself up over it and say, oh, but, but I, should, I should just be motivated to pray every day. No, you know what? Come back to the reasons and come back to it. Remind yourself of the truth of God's word that, you know what? God is storing up his wrath on the evil and he's storing up my prayers. And, and he's going to unleash them in that glorious moment. And even if it doesn't seem like he's listening, I know he is. And then get back into prayer. And you know what? You'll probably have to do that again in a, in, in, in a, in a day. And, do, and you just repeat that, and you do that over and over again. But don't give up. Because God is storing up those prayers. And I'm convinced that, that a, lot, a lot of the reason that our country is going the way it's going, a lot of the reason that our world, world is going the way it's going, is because his people have given up on prayer. I think sometimes we, we pray the same prayer to thank God for our breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if you were to take all the time that we spend doing that, and it maybe comes out to about a minute or two minutes a day, and compare that to the amount of time that we actually get on our knees with God and cry out to God, and even if it's to say how long, the time that we spend talking with God compared to that is probably even less for many Christians. When we should be on our knees stockpiling the power of prayer. Does that make sense? Today, my, my application, if there's anyone here who, who does not know, know, know Christ as your Savior, you're not sure where your eternal destiny is, by all means, don't walk out of here without talking to me. You can come up in a moment, you can come talk to me. I would be more than happy to, to sit you down with someone who could show you from God's Word how you can know for sure you have eternal life. That's the most important decision you could ever make. But my altar call today is going to be primarily... For those of you who would say, you know what, Pastor, I've already made the decision for salvation. I know that I'm saved. But I'm not praying like I should. If I make a suggestion, would you make your first prayer a prayer of repentance? Just get that right with God. Say, Lord, I have not prayed like I should. And then secondly, follow up with a prayer of dedication. Say, Lord, I'm dedicating myself to praying right now. I want to be one of those prayers. In fact, it's our prayers that will be heard in the book of Revelation. I want my prayers to be part of that incense. I want you to smell my prayers on that day. Come forward. Do business with God. I won't interrupt you. I would not want to interrupt the conversation between you and God. But I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'm going to invite you to get right with God and make a commitment to pray even when it seems like He isn't answering and be patient while you're waiting for answers and to look at it from an eternal perspective so that you can have that patience and see that power of, of that prayer unleashed on that day. Let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction that your word brings. Lord, I thank you for using John to preach to me this week as I study this passage. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would use the Holy Spirit, send your Holy Spirit right here, right now, to convict hearts in this room of anyone who knows you, but hasn't been praying like they should. Lord, I pray for a revival in our hearts.